Shannon. Good morning, friends. Happy New Year. I hope you've enjoyed uh, your holiday season, had, had a Merry Christmas with family, and it's a privilege to share with you today. Um, our life group has been going through the Gospel of John for several months now, and we were up to John chapter 13, and so when Shannon asked me to preach, I thought, well, why not just make this a big life group today? So you're a member of the West Jones Life Group for a day, okay? And we're going to look at John chapter 13, 1 through 17. So if you're online or, or here in person, navigate to your app or to your Bible, and we'll read that together. You know, I've often thought about the challenges to Jesus' leadership. You know, he had challenges from opposition and, uh, you know, challenges with people not believing his message, not having faith. But I think one of the greatest challenges to Jesus' leadership was his own disciples. You know, he had to manage private agendas and squabbles and, and misplaced expectations. And, you know, even in the final week of his life, he is managing squabbles about who's going to be the greatest. He's also got two of his disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder. You know, guys that have strong personalities and and drive pretty hard. They're saying, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand or at your left hand? And Jesus tries to explain to him, you don't know what you're asking, trust me. And so these are things that are happening, and we get to the final week of his life, and they're going to celebrate the Passover together. And so with precious little time, Jesus managing these expectations and these squabbles, he decides to do something pretty radical. And we're going to look at that together today. Let's read John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and, and returned to his place do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I grew up in church. Uh, from the time I was about five years old to the time I was about 30 years old, churches in my neck of the woods had three services a week. You had Sunday morning, you had Wednesday night, what some of them called prayer meeting, but really it was an excuse for the pastor to preach another message. And Shannon, for the life of me, I don't know why a pastor would want to preach three messages in a week. And then you had Sunday night training union. And if only there was online services back then, because there were a few Sunday nights when the wonderful world of Disney was on, and there was something I really wanted to see as a kid, so I would pretend to be sick. And every once in a while, my, my mom and dad would buy it, and I'd get to stay home from church. But besides those few times, I was in church three times a week, and I heard great messages and great teachings. I very seldom heard much on this. And I certainly never remember seeing it played out in the life of a local church. Fast forward from that time I was a child. In 2013, as missions pastor of a church, I had the privilege of going to East Asia. It was one of many trips that I went there trying to establish partnerships with local churches and we had a mission team from our church that was actually serving in a local church. They were teaching the, the lay leaders and the pastors how to do effective children's ministry. And so I came into town and I joined them for a few days of that training just to be an encouragement to the team and encouragement to the pastors. And the team leader felt the Lord prompting them to have a time where we wash the feet of those pastors and leaders there in East Asia. And I'll tell you, it's, it's uncomfortable. There's just no way around it. Um, but what was interesting is, uh, although it wasn't my decision, I decided to join them in this. And as we began to set these leaders down, it began to dawn on me, you know, these leaders in front of us, they worship God at incredible personal risk. They are persecuted. They're harassed. It costs them something to lead and to worship. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel unworthy. I felt privileged to be able to kneel at their feet, and I picked one of the leaders, and I began to wash his feet. And what started out as something that was foreign to me and a little uncomfortable, I've done it before, but in that setting... Um, it, was, it was just a little uncomfortable, but as soon as I started washing their feet, I was flooded with happiness. I was flooded with a, with a sense of unbelievable joy because I thought, this is church. Here are these leaders who their lives are on the line, and we get to encourage them, and we get to serve them, and we get to bless them. And, and I remember that being one of the epic moments of my travels was getting to just do something very basic that Jesus said, if, if you do this, you'll be blessed. And so this was an antidote to, for pride. This was an antidote for discord among his 
disciples. And so as we look at this passage today, I want, I want to share with you basically four things. What Jesus knew, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what we need to do about it. So as we look at what Jesus knew, we see that in John chapter 13, verses 1, 3, and 11, we find four things that it says that he knew. Now, this is a tough one, right? Because we know that Jesus is God. He was God in the flesh, not 50% man, 50% God, 100% man, 100% God. But yet, in Philippians 2, we see that although being God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and humbling himself. So there's this sense that Jesus, for a time, limited himself, although he is omnipresent as God, he limited himself to one place at one time. He also put governors on his learning and understanding because at the age of 12, we see Jesus in the temple teaching and they're astounded, yet he submits and goes home with his family and the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I don't pretend to understand all that. But what I do know is there are specific things that John says that Jesus knew in this moment in time. The first thing that he knew was his destiny. He knew that his hour had come. In some of my leadership teaching, I talk about destiny. The fact that in most leaders throughout the Bible, you see destiny revelation, you see destiny preparation, and then you see destiny realization. A quick example, Joseph. Destiny revelation. He has these two dreams where his brothers bow down to him and, of course, it gets him in all kind of trouble, right? They sell him into slavery, and then for the next 13 years, we see destiny preparation, where God is building character in him to match what he's going to ask him to do. And then eventually we see destiny revelation in Joseph's life, where his brothers come to him, and he reveals himself to them, and what does he say? God put me here for this moment in time. And what we see in Jesus' life is this destiny realization. In, in John chapter 12 and 13, he, he reveals this to them. He says in 12:23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's interesting, he doesn't say crucified. It includes that, but he said for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his destiny, is to be glorified. In 12, 27, and 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. And then in John 13, 1, it says that it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. Friends, there was no accident to the life and ministry of Jesus. It was always the preparation for this very moment when the Son of Man would be glorified, when his hour would come. So Jesus knew his destiny. 
He also knew his divine authority. It says, uh, John says that the Father had given, he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is past tense. It had already happened. That's what makes this story all the more extraordinary is that he had been bequeathed all the authority of heaven and yet this is how he chose to express himself. The Bible says in, that he also knew his true identity. It says where he came from and where he was going. There are a lot of conversations where Jesus revealed to people that his, his father had sent him from heaven. So Jesus knew his true identity. He knew that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh, and that he was among us. But he also knew his betrayer. And you think about this, if, if I were in Jesus' shoes and I had an inkling that one of the 12 people around me was going to betray me and sell me for a pittance, there's no way I'd want to wash their feet. There's no way they'd even be in the room with me. But Jesus knew this, and his knowledge and foreknowledge informed what he said and what he did in this epic moment. So that's the first thing, what Jesus knew, his destiny, his divine authority, his true identity, and his betrayer. And then this is what Jesus said. Look in verse 7 through 10, and then in verse 12 through 17, 7 through 10 and 12 through 17, he's talking to Peter. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And then look at 12 through 17. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So let's unpack that a little bit. And let's not put words into Jesus' mouth. It always bugs me when I hear somebody say, well, this is what Jesus said, but this is really what he meant. And let's let the words speak for themselves. What does Jesus actually say? The first thing he says is, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Notice he didn't say, guys, if you're uncomfortable with this, no worries. I'll just go to the next person. It's not what he did. We who are believers in Christ have been washed clean. We have been bathed in his righteousness. We have been cleansed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Friends, the moment that you and I, if you've made this decision, the moment that you and I placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were washed in his blood. Isaiah 1 says, come now, 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are clean. You're justified. You're made righteous in his sight. He has bathed you with his own very righteousness. We are a holy people, but we do walk in an unholy world, don't we? And we need cleansing from the sins that often beset us. And that's why he said, your whole body is clean, but Peter, I've got to wash your feet. This is a lesson in holiness. You and I have clean hearts and we're imputed his righteousness and we stand holy before him. But there's this idea of maintaining a holy posture and being a clean vessel for him to use. And friends, as we walk through this world as sinners, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, our feet get dirty. And it, it breaks our fellowship and our intimacy with Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. It has to do with our intimacy and fellowship with him. And so he's reminding Peter that although you're clean, there are times when your feet need to be cleaned. This is about pursuing personal holiness. So as part of the body of Christ, one of the things that we're to remind each other of is that you are clean, but we also need to confess our sins one to another and to the Lord and seek his cleansing and forgiveness to maintain the beauty of that intimacy. But he also said, I'm leaving you an example. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when Christ leaves you an example, it's worth following. Trust me on that one. He says, I'm leaving you an example, so we better listen. His examples are meant to be followed. And so he's sharing what he knew. He's talking to his disciples. This is what he said. And then he asked them a question. Do you understand what I've done for you? The ESV says to you. Do you understand what I've done to you? It was of utmost importance that they understand what Jesus was doing. It was an enduring lesson that was meant to be emulated and passed on. Do you understand what I've done for you? And then he says, you will be blessed if you do this. And this is talking about heaven's happiness. I think a lot of us pursue happiness that's not necessarily heaven's happiness. The happiness that we pursue is often self-serving and fleeting. But when Jesus says, blessed or happy are you, this is heaven's happiness. This isn't the world's happiness. There's an eternal quality to this. There's a, a, a beauty to this kind of blessedness. And so he's offering them, if you will do this, if you will look at this example, if you'll understand what I'm doing for you, and if you'll follow this example, you will be blessed if you do this. And so we see what Jesus knew and what Jesus said, but then we see what Jesus did. 
In Hebrew philosophy, a belief was not a belief unless it was acted on. All beliefs affected community because the actions they spawned affected every area of life. In Greek philosophy, belief would be separated from action. Thought and action suffered a painful divorce into upper and lower stories of existence. Greek thinking led to dualism, a separation between the material and spiritual aspects of life. Hebrews did not separate the heart from the mind or belief from action. They were one and the same. What you believe affected all you did from cooking a meal to building a city. What you did reflected what you believed. Therefore, work became an act of worship and no vocation was viewed as more sacred or higher than another. That's from the ascent of a leader. So think about this. Most of us in American society, we more often reflect the Greek dualism uh, where we separate uh, what we think from what we do. And in Hebrew life, they never separated the heart and mind. Belief uh, was not separated from action. That's why James says, you say that you believe? Show me. Show me your works. You know, faith, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? He goes on to say, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So the heart, what the heart believes, what the mouth says, and then what you actually do. Jesus is showing them, I'm not only saying this, I don't only know these things and have this wisdom, I'm not only saying these things, I'm going to show you what I mean. And this is what Jesus did, number one. He demonstrated true love. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This was not a conditional love. It was not a fleeting love. It was an enduring, eternal love. He loved his betrayer. He loved Simon Peter, who would later deny him three times. He loved all the rest of the disciples who would run away when he was about to be crucified. He loved them unconditionally. It was also a serving love. Jesus was personally invested in meeting practical needs. Let's think about this for a minute. In one of the other Gospels, Jesus told a couple of his disciples to go and prepare for the Passover feast. So they get everything ready, and then they come together for this feast. And obviously, somebody had prepared for their feet to be washed because there was a basin, there was a towel, there was water. But nobody wanted to be the one to wash the other's feet. And back in that time, everybody wore sandals. You know, the, the roads were dusty and dirty and trash and everything else. So when they would come together for a meal, there was usually a servant there. Usually the least servant of the household would actually do the washing. In this case, it was just the disciples and Jesus. And you would think that the two guys that prepared this would have thought, well, if we have this, then it's going to be up to us to wash the other's feet. But nobody would do that. You know, it was all there in plain sight, but nobody would stoop to do that. So what did Jesus do? He showed them what it was like to love. 
And he took up the basin, and he took up the towel, and he took off his outer garments, and he began to kneel and wash the disciples' feet. And I, I thought about this as I was preparing the message. What must have been going through their minds? When Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, immediately I think there's pride welling up. And then Jesus says, Peter, I have to wash your feet. What does he do? He's got to one-up everybody. Well, not just my feet, Lord. You've already washed their feet, but I'm, just wash everything. Just wash me. Pride. And I'm thinking in Jesus' mind, as he kneels down to Simon Peter and he's washing his feet, he may be thinking, these are the feet that walked on water, the feet of faith that came to see me. These are the feet that are going to leave the courtyard after he's denied me three times. These are the feet that are going to go back out to his old way of life, get on a fishing boat, and forget about the call on his life. And these are the feet that are going to run to me on the shore when I forgive him and reconcile him. And then you think about Jesus coming to James and John and, and what their thoughts were. Man, I sure wish I could be on the right or left of Jesus. What is he doing? I, you know, I, I don't want to humble myself like this. And Jesus is, is thinking about what they're going to do for him after he's risen from the dead. And then Judas. Man, we, we kind of understand what was in Judas' heart, deceit you know, ready to betray the one who had invested three years of his life in him and had loved him perfectly. And Jesus knew this, and he knelt down and he washed the feet of his betrayer. Friends, the only way that can happen is a perfect kind of love. And so we see that Jesus acted on his love. He demonstrated true love. He humbled himself to serve practical needs. Their feet needed washing. They were unclean. Nobody else would do it. Jesus showed that the greatest is not below humbling themselves to serve. He helped them understand the nature of holiness. It's important that you keep your feet clean spiritually. He left an enduring example for his church of what servant leadership really looks like. And then he declared a blessing for those who practice sacrificial love and service. Friends, this is important stuff. And we talk about it when it comes to servant leadership. It's one of the things that we refer to. But I think we're missing something in body life of a church when when we don't give this strong consideration and say, what are its implications for us in the 21st century? We don't walk on dusty roads with sandals very often. We drive to church. You know, we wear nice closed-toed shoes. We take showers every day. We don't necessarily need, from a hygiene standpoint, to wash each other's feet. But what if we need it from a spiritual standpoint? Have you ever thought about that? I certainly do. So, how should we respond? He said to follow his example, so I, I think we need to figure out a way to do that in our church and in our context. First of all, if we look at his example, what John 13 tells us is that we need to love each other truly. We need to love each other truly with an enduring, unconditional, demonstrative kind of love. 
Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ at Redeemer Church in that way? Do I love in that way? Can I say it's a true, enduring, unconditional, and demonstrative kind of love? If you wrong me, am I still willing to wash your feet? If you gossip about me, am I still willing to stoop down and humble myself before you and the Lord to serve your needs? So I wonder, do we love each other truly? Jesus, right after this this, uh, example that he left, in the same conversation, in the same room, on the same night, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. You must. It's a commandment. It's a new command. And then he says, greater love, in John 15, has no man than this to lay down his life for one's friends. And you and I are here because of the unconditional love of our Savior who laid down his life for his friends. This is the love that he's called his church to emulate. This is the love that lets an unbelieving world see that we're for real. That's it. It's not some ethereal kind of love out there. It's a practical, serving, unconditional kind of love. And then we're to walk in holiness. My friends, you are clean. Now let's keep our walk clean. Let's keep short accounts with our sin. Let's have accountability in our lives. Let's confess our sins to one another, whether it's the context of a mentoring relationship, a husband and wife relationship, a life group relationship. We need to walk in holiness as a body. It's important that the bride of Christ be pure and clean. Part of being holy is being useful. Paul says that we're, we're all vessels and that the key to the Christian life is being a vessel that can be used by our master in his hands. So am I a useful vessel? It depends on how clean I am in my daily walk with the Lord as to how much he can use me to be a blessing to others. And then number three, how should we respond? Not only are we to follow Christ's example by loving each other truly, but we're to walk in holiness and then serve each other with humility. This isn't a one-time event. I can't wash your feet one time and that's my service to you and I'm done and I check that off the box. No, this is talking about an ongoing practical service to meet the legitimate needs of others. People in our church that have little ones have legitimate needs. They need to be able to come into the service and hear the word of God preached. Somebody needs to do the practical work of nurturing their children changing diapers. Somebody needs to do the practical work of discipling our kids and going to youth camp and serving people in our church who have needs. There's so many things that we can be doing. Um, I want to share a verse with you in just a minute that, that gives an example. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but it kind of gives an example of meeting practical needs in an ongoing basis, and it's in 1 Timothy 5. And I found this interesting as I was studying, and and Paul is, is coaching this young pastor, Timothy, and he's talking about this list of widows. And he says this in, in 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10, 
No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and then in verse 10 is the key, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So all of this is a practical, physical expression of servanthood. And that's the examples that we have in Scripture, the example of Jesus, and then an example from 1 Timothy about what that kind of serving each other with humility looks like. And then the fourth thing that we should do with this is how should we respond is to receive heavenly happiness through our obedience. Blessed are you if you do these things. Blessed are you if you love with an enduring kind of love. Blessed are you if you walk in holiness. Blessed are you if you serve each other with humility, meeting practical needs. I want to share with you a story when another foot washing story. When I first became a pastor of a church, um, the previous pastor there had left and taken another church. And before he left, uh, things kind of started going south for the church. And as a leader in the church, I was guilty of talking about that pastor behind his back, being critical uh, of him and, and really disloyal in many ways. And then later, as I became pastor of that church, and I began to shepherd my own flock, God began to do that character development in me, began to refine my leadership and my character, and one day I very clearly and distinctly heard the Holy Spirit say, Keith, I want you to go wash that pastor's feet. I offered all kinds of excuses to the Lord. I haven't been in contact with him for a couple of years. You know, I don't know if he'll even see me, you know, those kinds of things, but I just felt so strongly convicted that I obeyed, and I called his church and his admin assistant, set up a meeting, and so I thought, okay, if I'm going to wash his feet, what do I need? So I got my briefcase. That's back when pastors carried briefcases, not man purses or satchels, but briefcases, and I stuck a bottle of water in there. I think it was Ozarka. I stuck a little hand towel, and I put a little plastic basin of water in there, so I walk in there, and I wait in the waiting room, and then he, he uh, clears away for me to see him. I go in this big church office, and he's dressed up, and, and uh, I sit down, and we exchange some pleasantries, and, and then I tell him the real reason I'm there. And friends, I was scared. I was uncomfortable, but I wanted so much to just do what God told me to do. And so I told him, uh, Pastor, I... I I need to confess something to you. I told him the sins that I had committed against him and that the Holy Spirit had prompted me to do this. And I said, uh, with your permission, and I got down on my knees and I opened my briefcase. I said, I would like to wash your feet. And I was ready to do that. And the pastor looked at me and he said, oh, Keith, it means so much to me that you would come here and that you would ask my forgiveness. And brother, I do forgive you, but you don't need to wash my feet. You don't need to do that. He said, I think what God was telling you was that you should be willing to wash my feet. And in that moment, I saw a way out, and I took it. And so I get back to my office, and 
I start replaying this in my mind. Why do I not feel a sense of happiness? It's because I didn't obey. I didn't obey wholeheartedly what my master told me to do. And I've always been sorry about that. If I could have a do-over, I would have done it over a hundred times. And so what I did as a reminder to obey God completely when he asked me to do something, especially when it comes to humbling myself and reconciling with a brother, I stuck that bottle of water in my office at my church on the, on the shelf as a daily reminder to obey the next time God asked, asked me to do something. Friends, I don't want to have another, I don't want to have another miss like that. And so I will tell you this, if God ever prompts me to wash your feet as an act of humility and service to you, you're going to have to be pretty insistent to not let me wash your feet <laughs> because I want to obey. And, and here's the thing, you know, some churches practice, and I'm not saying we need to practice foot washing, uh, not cleared that with Shannon and the elders, but what I'm saying is this, is that we need to serve one another with an enduring kind of love in practical ways that cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord and each other and just serve. Following the example of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Master, if he could humble himself to wash the feet of his disciples, to meet their needs and show them what it's like to truly love and serve, so can we. So can we. So may I pray for us? Father God, we love your son, Jesus. We love the great leader and teacher that he was. We love that he lived a perfect life, that he knew his destiny, that he knew his hour, that he knew that he would be glorified and that all things were under his control. Perfect authority, complete authority, and yet... He humbled himself and became the servant of all. Lord Jesus, would you help Redeemer Church to be known for our humility, our enduring love, and our practical service to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.